You're listening to the Man Project Podcast with your host, Ted Rice. Would you like to be bigger, leaner, and stronger? Do you want to develop the confidence to go after what you want in life? Or how about becoming the man that women want to be with? We're here twice a week to empower you to reach your full potential so you can live life on your own terms. Subscribe to our podcast or download our free app in the iTunes Store or Google Play. Find it all at manprojectpodcast.com. Now, back to the show. In this episode of The Man Project, you're going to get inside the mind of an elite warrior. I'll be interviewing Dr. Mike Simpson. He's a former Army Ranger and Special Forces operator. And if that wasn't enough, after the military, he went on to become a medical doctor, specifically an emergency medicine physician. He's also a highly regarded lecturer due to his expertise in both tactical trauma care and combat sports medicine. If you've been listening to this show for a while, then you know I love talking with guys like Mike. I believe there's so much to learn from elite operators that we can apply to our own lives to be stronger both mentally and physically, even if we'll never serve in the military. You're going to hear how Mike overcame the challenges of ranger training and the special forces selection process. You'll also hear stories about what it's like to be in combat and how to step up your mindset to be more like the elite men who serve in special forces. This is going to be a great one. So get ready to be inspired and to level up your mindset. Dr. Mike Simpson, welcome to The Man Project. Thanks for having me, Ted. Yeah, man, you just have such a crazy, interesting, amazing background. I'm so glad to have you here. And before we get to that, let's start with a quote because I know you got a great one for us. Yeah, you had said in an email, of course, when we were setting this whole thing up, you asked if I had a quote that I like to live by and, and one immediately came to mind. I'm not sure where I first heard it, and I don't know when I kind of adopted it as my own, but something that I've always held very close to myself, especially in times of strife and something I've tried to pass on to both of my sons, and that is success is what happens when you run out of excuses. And I really, really believe that. Wow, I like that, man. Success is what happens when you run out of excuses. Really like that. And you don't seem like one to make an excuse because you have such an amazing background. I know I said that twice, but you were in the army, joined the Ranger Battalion. You changed things. Uh, you changed, got out of the military, got back in and you went into special forces. You've been around the world. And can you share that story with us? Why'd you go into the military and how that whole trajectory of your life, how'd that go? Well, I grew up in a very small town in Southern California, a town called Tehachapi that most people have never heard of, little mountain town, small town values, very uh, patriotism, high school football, everything that you would expect to go along with that, and started getting interested in the military, junior high, high school time frame, actually myself and a close friend of mine, Brian Edwards, who's also still on active duty. He's the uh, sergeant major of Special Forces Command. And he and I, it was something he and I both talked about growing up, going in the Army. He was a year older than me. He went and enlisted. And then, of course, a, a year later, I chose a pretty similar path. He went directly in Special Forces, and I went into the Ranger Battalion. For me, how old are you, Ted? I am 38. Actually, today is my birthday, which okay, I shared right. with you. Happy um, so, birthday. <laughs> thanks, man. I appreciate yes. it. So you're about 10 years behind me. So that's uh, the 80s to me kind of uh, exemplified a. Uh, kind of a resurgence in patriotism in the United States. And I think that started, to me, I always trace it back to the Olympic hop hockey game in 1980, when it kind of became cool to be an American again. And I kind of carried that spirit over with me when I joined the Army in 1984, two weeks out of high school, went to basic training at Fort Benning, Georgia, and then went to basic airborne training also there at Fort Benning, and then went on to my first assignment, the 1st Ranger Battalion in Savannah, Georgia, and served there for four years. And for me, as a young guy right out of high school, not just going into it, starting a military career, but just as a young man kind of uh, shaping in his formative years, 
the Ranger Battalion was really no better place to lay that foundation. Just uh, discipline, the self-reliance, the reliance on those uh, around you, being goal-oriented, being mentally, physically, and spiritually fit in all that you do. It was just a great place to start. Yeah, that's really cool. And you have a story about what you had to go through to get beyond that. But before we get to that, let's hear about what happened when you went back into the military because you're part of special or were part of special forces. So why did you leave the military and get into law enforcement? And then why back into special forces as a Green Beret? Well, I got a, after a, my tour in the Ranger Battalion, I had really thought that the military was only going to be a four-year thing for me, going to be a springboard either into a course going on to college or law enforcement or something different. And law enforcement also was something I'd become interested in really before I ever got out of high school. A lot of guys in the Ranger Battalion during that time frame got out, went straight into law enforcement. There was a time when I think the entire Savannah, Georgia, Savannah PD SWAT team was all former Ranger Battalion guys. And that was something that I looked to do as well. I got out at the end of my tour of service, time of service, did stay in the National Guard because I, I had uh, a little bit of a commitment left and went on to pursue a job in law enforcement. I was going to college, started off working in corrections, and then eventually uh, got picked up as a deputy sheriff. About that time, right about the time I was getting hired as a deputy sheriff, Desert Storm, Desert Shield was going on. And the National Guard unit that I was in, which was a, happened to be a Special Forces Guard unit, even though I hadn't gone to the Special Forces qualification course yet, um, got mobilized and got called up and uh, called to Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Ended up being too late for any of us to deploy and go overseas. But once I got there and started getting back into training again, that was the time period that I went to Special Forces Assessment and Selection. I really realized how much I missed it. I mi realized how much I missed just to the day-to-day -day life of being a soldier, out of being something, part of something larger than yourself. And I think I didn't get that, definitely didn't get that in college life. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't really, you know, I kind of, only got toe or ankle deep into the law enforcement community, but I wasn't really feeling it there either. And just being back on active duty and immediately being faced with that challenge of getting thrown into special forces assessment and selection and making it through with some bumps and bruises and some stress fractures and, and everything else, saying, wow, you know, I just missed rising to the challenge and I missed being a part of something like this. Wow. That's really interesting because that's something I've always been so interested in. And especially with the Green Berets, I mean, I've watched the Navy SEAL, the BUDS training and everything, but I know, you know, I've always fantasized about doing something like that. And my life kind of took some weird turns. So that never happened. But anyway, one of the things I've seen on TV on Netflix actually is the Green Beret selection process. And man, mm -hmm. I was watching that thing. I was like, fuck, I got to get my, these guys are crushing themselves and being pushed to the limit. I got up, I started working out. So if you ever are lacking some motivation to work out, go to Netflix and turn <laughs> that on and you will feel like, God, I need to man the fuck up right now and get my ass up and do some push-ups, do some squats, do something. <laughs> man, that got me uh, moving. But Mike, you said, the physical aspects of being a ranger in a Green Beret were almost always the most challenging for you. You had to depend on Definitely. your intelligence, your mental strength to make it through. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. Just so all your listeners know, I'm not one of these big guys that you see in these action adventure movies. I'm five feet, six inches tall. Growing up, I was short and probably a little bit too wide around the middle. I wasn't a chubby kid. But I definitely wasn't uh, lean guys you'd see out running track. Played sports in high school. I played high school football. Never made it past second string. I wasn't a fast guy. I've got short, stubby little legs. I was never going to be the quarterback or the wide receiver. And I kind of had to make it through my high school football career, what there was of it, just on toughness. So, you know, I played center and I played middle linebacker. Carrying on over into the military, you know, a lot of the guys who chose to go the special forces route lot of athleticism and you know it, for me being even not above average but you know shorter than average I did have to compensate for that a lot of what we do has to do with carrying heavy loads over long distances and uh, I can't overstate how much having a very short stride on short stubby legs makes a big difference in that I'm sure you saw in the videos you've seen about SF selection those obstacle courses are no joke and they definitely discriminate against the short guy uh, <laughs> yeah. so 
you know, you got to kind of bite through your lower lip a little bit and figure out a way to do things. You know, I've got smaller hands than everybody else, you know, to grab onto a rope, grab onto a log, to climb up and over an obstacle. Uh, I've got a much lower center of gravity, which, which helps me in some aspects, but getting up and over stuff can be a little bit challenging. So yeah, I, I did always feel like I kind of had to, you know, like I say, bite my lower lip and get through it on grit a little bit more than some other people did. I think it was in my third year in the Ranger Battalion, there was a an individual who a lot of us looked up to, very athletic guy, a guy who things always just seemed to come very easy to, not only physically, but he was just a great all-around uh, soldier. He ended up going a very long way in the special operations community. He's been mentioned in a couple of books here and there. Wouldn't want to embarrass the guy, so I'm not getting into it in great detail who he is, but he was in my company in battalion, and one day after a 12-mile road march with you know, 45, 50-pound rucksacks, and of course, I had the additional weight of I was a 90-millimeter recoilless rifle gunner, so that's an extra 37 and a half pounds sitting on top of that. Wow. Um, he walks over to me and he says, you know, every time I want to quit, I look at you and you motivate me. And I said, how's that? You know, this is a guy that who I looked up to, you know, who I thought was just the Rangers Ranger. And he says, yeah, every time I see those short, stubby little legs of yours just to chugging away, I say, if that guy's not going to quit, I've got no business quitting. Wow. That's awesome. I love how you were like, man, that guy is awesome. And he's like, whoa, that guy is awesome. You're awesome. And you both <laughs> kind of motivated each other. It reminds me of a buddy of mine, friend of mine that I have, and we kind of have that mutual respect and he inspires me in certain ways and I inspire him on certain ways. That's so cool, man. And you know, you were saying, Oh, it's hard to get up over some things, you know, dude, the whole entire, listen, if you haven't seen the green beret selection process, videos. It's like a two-part thing and it's on Netflix. Watch that because the first thing that stuck out to me is the pit with the log training and guys oh, yeah. would run over and like puke and then run back and grab the log and keep going. And there was mm -hmm. one guy who was like, oh, you know, groaning and moaning. He's like, suffer in silence. You need to <laughs> shut up and suffer in silence. Nobody wants to hear that because everybody's going through the same thing. That was so cool. Have you seen that by any chance? I've seen, there's been a couple different documentaries out there on F SF Selection. I don't think I've seen the most recent one to come out. There was one that it was actually shot for the BBC. Actually, it was shot while I was going through uh, Selection back in uh, 1991. There's a couple other ones out there. All of them are a pretty accurate portrayal. And you mentioned the log drills in the pit. One thing about those logs is when they say they're generally going to line you up by height, to share those logs, but it never quite ends up that way. And of course, the laws of gravity, the weight's going to go downhill. So yep. you can choose to be one of two people. You can either be the short guy in the middle of the log where everybody else is carrying the weight and you're not carrying any, or you can be the short guy in the end of the log, which is basically holding more weight than anybody else. And where were you? I not think to put I, you on the spot, but... Yeah, put me on the spot. <laughs> I want to say that because we had a break in the middle of it. I want to say that I started out on the end and then we came back. I ended up being the second guy from the end. So it wasn't as bad, man. You know what? This part of that's the strategy because I was looking at that. I was like, man, I couldn't do this. I mean, I got the heart. I got the conditioning. I was never a strong guy when I was younger, but man, I was like, something would break. I have the heart. I have the mindset, but man, something would break and I would have to leave. And actually a lot of guys, several of the guys walked off and they were done because of injuries and, you know, mm -hmm. but they didn't give up, but the injury takes them out. Well, Absolutely. man, that's really, let's talk about the mindset. What has that type of training done for you? Because I want to get into, because you've been around the world, 17 different countries and over 31 years, and I want to get to that, but I want to hear a little bit about the mindset, what it's done for you in the rest of your life and what a guy listening right now, what he can take away from that and maybe put into his own life. I think the biggest thing that I've taken away from it is that your breaking point is always a lot farther along than you think it is. And, uh, you know, you think a lot of times you think I'm at the cusp of my breaking point. I really am. And you're not, there's a lot farther that you can go. And, uh, there's a saying that, uh, a guy who went to special forces selection just ahead of me and, and made it through and some advice that he gave to me and, and some friends of mine, as he said, he said, always tell you, when you feel like quitting, tell yourself, well, I'll quit tomorrow. 
So if I can make it through just one more day. And sometimes things can be so painful that you're thinking, well, I'll quit 10, uh, 10 more minutes, 10 more minutes and I'll quit. You know, it's like, and Ted, I, I'm sure you've had experience with this. You know, you go on a run or something like that. And I'm just going to make it to that next telephone pole or to that next corner. And then I'm going to slow down. And uh, you have to mentally just be able to do that when it comes to anything and realize that your brain is going to quit. Your body's going to be able to keep going. Your brain is going to be what tells it to quit. And yet you just have to override that and realize that you've got a lot more endurance than you think you have. Yeah, you have a lot more endurance. You have a lot more power. You're much stronger than you realize. And it takes something like that, like Green Beret selection process or the Ranger training to get you to do it. What about a guy who's not in the military? His life just isn't going that direction for whatever reason. How can we start to get more mentally tough in your opinion? I think the best way to get mentally tough is just to challenge yourself, get yourself out of your comfort zone. Do things in a stepwise fashion. It's more about progress than it is about perfection. You know, if maybe there's a guy out there listening and he's physically not in good shape and he's not in a job that he's really crazy about or in a situation that he's really crazy about, you know, it starts out little by little. I mean, the biggest failure that, and of course, you know, we just started February. This February is failure month for New Year's resolutions. We all know that. Yep. This, is, this is the month where people didn't make enough progress in January and they quit can't be about that. It can't be about, you know, if you're never reaching your goals, they're too high. If you're always reaching your goals, they're too low. Set some interim goals for yourself and just say, hey, you know what? I'm going to exercise 20 minutes a day, three days a week. And if it hurts, I'm going to slow down, but I'm not going to stop. You know, I'm going to keep going to that. Not I got on the treadmill and wow, it hurt. So I'm just stopping. Well, you know what? If you got to slow down, slow down, but keep doing it. Going for any pace and just setting a time limit is going to help you over time. And the same can be true with, with your life situation. Set little goals for yourself. I'm not happy with the job that I'm in. Start looking into some other stuff. Start looking at what you can do to make yourself more marketable and set aside a little bit of time each week. You know, cut out uh, you know, an hour of your Xbox time and make it <laughs> self-development time because you know, I've got this goal, this great job that I want to get. Yeah, that's some wise advice right there. Excellent. Now I want to talk about some of what you've gone through in your deployment. Something funny, guys. I asked Dr. Mike here, Mike, if he could talk about what happened, what he went through, if he could share some stories, because he's been all around the world in 17 different countries, and he's gone through some stuff. And uh, he got back to me. He's like, I can talk about I can't divulge that much. And he, by the way, he's got a ton of medals too. And he can't go into a lot of detail about it. But he said, I'm happy to talk about the general stuff pertaining to my deployments and getting shot at. I'm like, whoa. I mean, for you, Mike, I'm, it's something that you lived and you're like, well, yeah, you know, you get shot at. But for me, I've never been shot at. I've never had a gun in my face or really faced something like that. So can you talk about whatever you're available to talk about with regards to what you've done in the special forces. Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, you made me sound a lot cooler than I think I actually am, but, uh, <laughs> I don't know about that, man. <laughs> Early on in S, of course I came into SF and it, it was the nineties. So it, it was not a period after the desert shield, desert storm. I think historians would call, you know, low intensity stuff and deployed several times to central and South America. And, uh, Anybody who's read a newspaper in the last 20 years or so knows that the type of players that are operating in that area. So that's uh, you know a big part of my job had to do with doing things that were in the best interest of a stable Western Hemisphere, uh, so to speak. Initially, when I joined the Special Forces, uh, I was a Special Force Engineer Sergeant. Some would say a demolitions guy, and then uh, later was a medic. So sometimes the things that I did had to do with working with uh, some of our counterparts in that part of the world in training them in uh, tactical proficiency and, and how to be better at what they were doing to go up against the people that they needed to go up against. And sometimes it had to do, later on when I was a medic, had to do with providing care to some of those people and providing care also to civilians. One of my most rewarding deployments, I ran a clinic for three months just outside of a little village in South America. Happened to be at a time when uh, it was not the most peaceful place to be. So that was my first experience you know, treating what you would call battlefield trauma. 
can be a little bit of a rude awakening, I think, for some people. And in many respects, it was for me as well. But I did find out that my training was realistic and prepared me very well for it. What do you mean rude awakening? What happened that kind of like, whoa, that, um, that really got you, like you said, awake? Yeah, just the first time that somebody brings you in a gunshot casualty. Yeah, and I'd seen, you know, I'd worked in, in emergency rooms before doing going through my medic training, but seeing a guy come in fresh out of the field and you're there to meet the chopper when it lands and you're pulling him off and he's been shot through the chest, it just, a little part of your mind, and to me it probably seemed like a longer pause in my brain than it actually was. It was probably just a fraction of a second, but there's just a, a part of you that goes, wow, this is real. This is not a mannequin, you know, with some cables hooked up to it and a guy on the other end, you know, making it breathe. This is a real person. This is somebody who I know who I was having breakfast with this morning and they've been shot. It's just a little bit different. It's not caro syrup and red food coloring anymore. It's a real thing. It's real blood coming out of a wound and a, a real guy whose life is in your hands. Wow. That's crazy. And, you know, I respect the hell out of people who serve our country. And I, I respect you, Mike, for what you've done and sound. I've never seen anything like that. And I'm just glad there's guys out there who will rise up to the challenge and take care of what they need to do. That's very cool. Mike, you also said something really interesting. You said that from being in the special forces, you see how packs of alpha males work together and you appreciate what drives the soldiers in the special operations community. And that plays a part in your interest in mixed martial arts because you're a practitioner of martial arts and you also, you work fights as a fight doctor now. Can you talk a bit about that? Oh, absolutely. Coming up in the Ranger Tank, coming up in special forces, those communities tend to draw the type of individual, like I said, very alpha male for the most part, very goal-oriented, somebody who sets very strict standards for themselves. You know, you have two types of people in the world. You have uh, people that can do anything as long as they're externally motivated. You know, it's like, I'll take out the trash, and my wife tells me to take out the trash, but I might not want to take out the trash otherwise, you know, external motivation. And then you got people who are more internally motivated. I see the trash needs to be taken out, and I'm going to take out the trash. And same type of people in this community, people who don't need to be told nobody might have set time aside to do physical training that day. Well, they're going to get up an hour early and they're going to do it on their own. Nobody told them to make sure that their kit's ready to go and their magazines are loaded, but they're doing it anyway. And uh, the special operations community really draws those type of people, people that are maybe a little bit of OCD, very goal-oriented, expect a lot out of themselves and expect a lot out of those around them. And uh, just seeing the way those people interact, it's, uh, of course, it's, you know, very uh, testosterone-driven society. So everything you would expect, you know, from practical jokes to just really busting on each other. If you've got a mental weakness and you make the mistake of showing it early, (laughs) you are going to hear about it every single day in every way, shape, and form from, you know, little pictures inside your locker to uh, stuff coming over the radio in the middle of a mission to, you know, to bust your nuts so to speak, everything else. And I do see a lot of that, the same type of mentality in uh, the MMA fighters that I work with. Very high standards set to themselves, very internal motivators. You know, They get in the gym, they do their three days, not with somebody telling them to do it because they know that's what they need to do. Very critical of themselves, watching films of their old fights, seeing what they can do better, really absorbing knowledge. You know, In the special operations community, it's all about I want to want to absorb training and knowledge that's all about how I can do my job better. And uh, in MMA, it's I want to absorb knowledge that's all about how I can get in that cage and I can defeat my opponent and uh, whatever it is. You know, is training harder? Is it some supplement that I need to be taking? Some new technique, new jiu-jitsu technique that I need to learn, you know, a darsh choke counter or wherever it might be. So I see a lot of similarities in, in these young guys. They're, you know, a lot of them are pretty young. Remind me just an awful lot of the guys in their late teens, early 20s that I saw coming up in the Ranger Battalion when I was about that same age. That's cool, man. I like how you say about the, you know, if you show weakness, it's just going to come back. If someone in that group knows that you have like that button they can push to get you, it's just going to keep 
coming. And, you know, me and my friends do that from my jujitsu class. And <laughs> you have to always, I mean, it. he'll put his hand on my leg. I'm like, yeah, kind of feels nice. It's yeah, like, do the little things bother you, right? <laughs> yep. And if Absolutely. you learn, by the way, I had a friend of mine who used to do that when I was like 19 and he was like three years older. It would drive me up the wall. That's before I started maturing and just getting seriously into combat sports. And it would drive, get your hand off me, you know, you know. <laughs> and how do we learn how to be like that externally motivated guy, that guy who's like, you know, you know, you have a weakness and guys will make fun of it and just... Like, yeah, okay, cool. It's my weakness. You made fun of it. And uh, yeah, so what? Are we going to move on? Or, you know, are you going to leave your hand on my leg? Because uh, I'm starting to get a little turned on. <laughs> you know, I don't know how you learn to be the externally motivated guy. And I don't, I don't know how you learn also to be the guy who, who can take it when other guys are, are dishing it out. I mean, I think some people have it. You just have to take everything in stride. And you, ha you need, have to realize that everyone has a weakness. You're not the only one. There was one guy in particular I was on a team with, and he was really that guy who, if he found out you had a weakness, he would be on it like a dog on a bone. It did get under my skin for a little while, and then I finally realized, this guy's got more baggage than anybody else, and that's why he's doing it. <laughs> that's this is all about deflection for him. And as soon as I realized that, and then one particular day he said to me, trying to get under my skin, and it was something he'd said before, and I don't even recall what it was. But I just looked at him and I go, yeah, you matter. And I walked away. <laughs> and at that point, he just realized, well, okay, it's not going to work. I got to find somebody else. So he was a good friend of mine. There was nothing malicious about it. But yeah, I think there was a little bit of deflection there. Yeah. And I think that's so important because there's two things there. First of all, you understood that it's mostly the guy's issue and it's his like whatever you know, bullshit going on in his head that makes him want to mess with other people to make him feel better. And also the fact that you're like, all right, if I keep giving into this, if I keep reacting to this, he's going to keep doing it because he wants the reaction. So instead of like losing my shit, I'm just going to not react to it. I'm going to say something like, yeah, you mattered and uh, walk away. That I think is really important as well. I interviewed this guy, Jack Donovan. I don't agree with everything he said, but he said some very important things. And one of the things was you need to be around a group of strong guys that put you in check because it's easy to be an alpha male if you're around a, a bunch of kind of dudes who don't have their shit together or if you're about around a bunch of women. Do you agree with that or how do you look at that? You know, I do. I don't know if that can be said for being about around a group of women because there's some alpha females out there who will put you in check. Sure. <laughs> That's 100% true. But I will say if you're around a bunch of Omega dogs, you kind of get free reign and you can get a little bit too big for your britches. And uh, I'll give you an example of that. In my current job, I'm the chief of emergency medicine at my hospital. When I was selected by the outgoing chief to take that job, I had to sit down for a one-on-one -on -one interview with the deputy chief of clinical services and had a long talk about, you know, what I thought I brought to the table and everything else. And at the end, we, we both knew that it was really kind of, the department had kind of already decided they wanted me for the job and I needed to make sure there were no red flags there. And then at the end, as I got up to leave and he shook my hand, he said to me, don't try to win every argument with every other department in this hospital because you will. Wow. Okay. And I think that was some recognition of the bulldog persona that I kind of projected, you know, some would call it part of my short man's complex, I guess, to the rest of the hospital. And there's a lot of egos in medicine. There really is. It's a different kind of ego than the trained killer ego that I grew up with. And it would be really easier for me to, you know, to, to kick open the door every time and throw my ego into the room like a flashbang and come in and try to be the alpha dog and dominate everybody right off the bat. And then nothing would get done and I'd be at odds with every other department. And I also think that if I did that, there are times when I go back and I train with the special operations community and I think I'd get smacked right back down again because those guys would be busting my chops. So you got to stay humble. You got to realize that you got to pick and choose your fights and you have to look at the objective, the objective for you in that situation was, okay, well, I want things done. I want this to work smoothly. This is part of 
my profession. You know, I, I have the greater good of the hospital in mind. Got to bob and weave, let these guys think that they're cool, you know, whatever they need, feed their <laughs> ego. So things run smoothly. Yeah. I mean, I can't be, you know, I can't go in there. And really at the end of the day, if I'm arguing over something that's a bit of administrative policy, you know, hospital policy, my ranger training and my special forces training doesn't even come into that argument. It's, uh, you know, so me trying to leverage that to win an argument, it's not the right thing to do. That's really the epitome of being a bully and that's not the right thing. You hear these stories come out of Washington, D.C. about these politicians who are these notorious bullies with other politicians, you know, in meetings and everything else. And then you look, I'm not going to mention any names, but you look these guys up and it's like, okay, the guy, this is a guy who went to prep school and then uh, he studied ballet in college. So he's not exactly a tough guy. So why does everybody else feel bullied by him? It's all about mindset. And again, that's, I look at that individual and I say, you know what, that's an individual who has never been around a group of alpha males. So nobody has put him in check. Man, you know, that's such an important lesson because uh, I live here in Miami Beach. There's a lot of guys, a lot of cool guys who are very successful and have worked their way into their money and they're enjoying it. But there's also this sort of like, well, I've always had money and uh, that makes me better than other people. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, there is a story about a friend of mine at this place and my buddy's 6'3", 240 pounds, and he's a professional bodyguard. And, you know, he's not like a ranger like you and but that type of thing, but he's done MMA and everything. And this guy was walking towards him, this, mm -hmm. you know, this rich dude kind of thinking he was a little cooler than he was and mm -hmm. uh, drunk and belligerent. And my friend just knocked him. You know, it's like he's not going to cower out of his way to let the the fat, you know, rich, drunk guy walked by. He knocked him over and, and kind of made him a fool. He's like, man, are you okay? You, you've been drinking. Like, you know, you, you gotta, <laughs> yeah, that's so important, man. You want to be around other strong men because even if it makes you feel a little uncomfortable or a little insecure, that's a good thing that's going to make you grow. And that buddy I just mentioned, he is someone who's made me grow because I'm not as big as him and I don't have the game he has because the types of jobs he's done. Anyway, that's such a cool story and a great lesson. Let's talk about an article that you wrote that was super interesting and you sent my way and I was like, wow, this is powerful stuff. And basically, it's about fighting. And you wrote it about, it's called The Agony of Defeat. I'll put it in the show notes because it's something that everyone listening should read because you'll learn a lot about it. But can you talk about martial arts, talk about combat, talk about fighting? Why is it important for us as men to do it in a society where we could go our whole entire lives from kindergarten to the deathbed without ever getting in a physical altercation at all? I don't yeah. think that's a good thing, <laughs> but let's hear your breakdown of it because you have such a great perspective on this. No, that's kind of expound on the point you just made, and it carries over from what we were just talking about and the, and the story about your friend. A friend of mine years ago said, he said, you know, the problem with most people is there's so many people out there who've never done the gravel dance. They've never known what it's like to be called out. And, you know, the rich kids, whatever you call them, you know, they're in these positions where nobody said, all right, well, let's step outside and talk about it. And I'm not saying that, you know, sometimes I got called out by somebody once over an issue, and I knew this was a guy that could take me. But that was his answer to everything, was calling people out. And I said, all right, that's fine. I said, we'll go. And I said, uh, and you're going to kick my ass, and I'll still be right. But as long as we both know that going into it, if you feel you need to get this out of your system, let's go. We didn't go. Thank goodness, because the guy would have totally thrashed me. But I, I do agree with you that that's a check and balance that occurred over thousands of years that's not there anymore. And, and I talked about it in the article that, that you mentioned. We are a competitive species. If we were not a competitive species, we wouldn't have been as successful as we have been at the top of the food chain. People attributed a little bit more you know, to the Y chromosome, and I think to some extent that's certainly been proven that men by nature – are very competitive. I've heard women say, oh, you men, you'll, you'll turn anything into a competition, you know, jumping up and hitting the awning as you walk under it, you know, walking through New York City, whatever it might be, everything's a competition. And I think that was important for the species in the early days. And, and it is 
to some extent, something that we've lost. Competition was how we got food. Competition was how we secured a mate, how we secured a place of lodging, how we got our position at the fire and established our position within the tribe. And those who were not up for that competition or who were okay with losing, and I talk about this in the article, if you were an okay loser, well, you got banished from the tribe and you died alone without ever reproducing. And that good loser trait died in you somewhere out on the plains. That carried over for generation to generation. And uh, psychiatrists and psychologists have talked about this. Anthropologists have talked about this. You know, The need to compete has been illustrated in cave drawings and hieroglyphics, in the Mayan pyramids, everything else, to the victor going the spoils and the losers moving to obscurity. So the psychological effects, when you win, we know that your testosterone in- increases, you have an endorphin release. You're rewarded with a great feeling about yourself and also your body tells you you're victorious. It's time to do something about that. And when you lose, there's a totally different chemical reaction. You're chemically punished by your own, your own system telling you that what you did is not the right thing to do. When somebody loses a fight, whether it's on the street or whether it's in the ring or the cage, those signals are the same that primitive part of their brain is telling them, you just failed all of your ancestors. Now you have missed an opportunity to prove the worth of your bloodline, so to speak, and to pass on those genes to future generations. And you feel that. That gets internalized, even if it's on a level that you can't quite grasp. I mean, that's what's going on. All the other things, of course, also, you know, hey, I was in fight camp for eight weeks, and this was wasted, and I worked on the wrong things, and I'm embarrassed. You're feeling that loss on multiple levels. You really are. Yeah, that's such an interesting perspective. And you sound like you've thought about it, you've read about it, and you've experienced it being in the special operations community and and now doing the MMA athletes you work with and training yourself. I really believe that everyone should either get into a martial art or take like self-defense training like what Tim Larkin offers because I don't think we should ever – we don't live in a world where – we can just not be that guy who's willing to kill someone if someone else is willing to kill us or hurt our families or, you know, we need to keep that. There are a lot of people who think that's a bad idea. I know where you stand, but how would you, I obviously know where you stand coming from your (laughs) background, but how would you talk to the guy who's like, well, you know, I want to do martial arts, but, uh, you know, I'm busy. I don't know if I really need it or should do it. I don't really see myself getting into a fight ever. Or Can you talk about how it makes us, your views on how it improves our masculinity or personal power? Or- Great question. And I'm glad you got around to that because it- this is a couple of things we've talked about along the way have made me think about this. And when we talked about that guy who needs a little bit of motivation, we're talking about him again now. And I would encourage anybody. I tried a few different martial arts growing up and none of them really took. Now I'm a practitioner of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I'm a three-stripe white belt, hoping for my blue belt this year. I encourage anybody to take uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu because I just think it's so helpful on so many levels. First of all, the physical aspect is obvious. I mean, it's really going to help you get in shape. It's such a great workout. Uh, Strength, endurance, explosivity, it's just a phenomenal workout. It's amazing. The great thing about it, too, and I know you've noticed this because you're brown belt, correct, Ted? Yes. Yeah, the great thing about- I have three stripes. I'm so close to my black belt, but I'm not, you know, I've got so many injuries. I don't want to get into it. I hear you. The great thing about Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is- You're such a flailing spaz early on that your workout is just phenomenal. You're so tired (laughs) after your first roll. You're like, oh, my God, because you haven't learned how to be efficient yet. It's not the amount of gas in the tank. It's the number of miles per gallon at that point. It's neat to see in people how they start out burning so much excess energy, but that helps them because it's helping them build up that gas tank. So by the time they're a two- or three-stripe white belt – They're way, way, way more efficient and they have more gas. It's kind of come along together because they're not doing all that wasted energy. Mentally, I think it's great because, again, it's that feeling of competition. You're pitting yourself against others. And more importantly, you're pitting yourself against yourself. 
Musashi said it, you know, today we conquer ourself of yesterday, tomorrow we conquer lesser men. And that's what it's all about. Conquer yourself of yesterday. Just be a little bit better than you were yesterday. Progress over perfection. That's the key. Day in, day out, making it work. You're around more alpha males or alpha females, and depending on where you're going to class, there's a lot of females out there. BJJ is becoming very popular with the women. You're getting to be around people that are like-minded. They want to self-improve. There's no judgment on the mat in BJJ. Those type of people, the people that bring way too much ego into the gym, they don't last very long. They don't last very long at all. They're usually, they're either warned off or they're pulled aside by somebody like you or a black belt and they're schooled privately and we both know what that means. You know, if a guy's a, you know, an upper level white belt or a blue belt or maybe even, I've never seen, I think by the time you're a purple belt, I think it's pretty much weeded out. You know, I've seen a couple of uh, blue belts with egos in a couple of gyms, but I don't think they last very long. A lot of it, I think, has to do with the culture, you know, and the way Joe Rogan talks about it in his podcast quite a bit. You know, you go to these places, you know, with the Kung Fu masters and the Taekwondo masters, and they're just revered and everything else. And, you know, they would never, you know, stoop so low as to actually spar with with somebody to actually you know show what they can do and the bjj culture is totally different you know that black belt yep. is out there pulling with you you know and he's giving you a shot you know he's putting that arm out there for you you know to because he knows what you should be able to do at your level and he's giving you a chance to do it and when it's over you shake you know it's pat on the back hey my friend my friend you know it's <laughs> it's all good it's a totally different culture i've got an, an article that i've been kicking around in my head for a while probably be the next one that I try to get out there. And it's basically going to be on how MMA and BJJ is saving America. I love it, man. And I agree. Yeah. You know, it's so funny because I've been in jujitsu for, I don't know, I think like 11 years now. And it's just so interesting. I have a totally different take on it, totally different persona than I had before. I was that guy, the white belt expending too much energy. I tore both sides of my ribs, the cartilage in both sides of my ribs as a result of trying to flail out of arm bars, but I stuck with it. And I was a punk up until about, you know, blue belt, somewhere in blue belt. Then you start chilling out in purple belt. You're just a solid badass. And then brown belt, I'm like, yeah, man, I'm a brown belt, whatever. I'll choke you out, whatever. Cool. Go for beer, whatever. You know, it's not, I don't take it. It's just, integrated into my life. It doesn't define me as much anymore, but it's just interesting hearing, you know, your take on it and your new, by the way, who are you training with? So John Ramsey is, uh, is who I train with. He owns that name. Uh, he's a Brown belt originally out of, from under Drysdale. So I know you're familiar with him. He owns John's gym in uh, Northern Austin, Texas, and also Georgetown, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu up here in Georgetown. And I have absolutely no excuses because it's a half a mile from my house. So I, I pretty much have to go. And uh, John's just uh, an amazing instructor. I've learned a lot from him. My BJJ journey actually started at probably the worst possible time. It was when I was a, a resident fresh out of medical school. Didn't really have time to put any serious time into it, but I knew that I liked it. And I would do it. I was one of those guys who I'll do it for a month and then you're not going to see me for six to nine months or maybe a year. And then I'll do it for a month again. And then you're not going to see me for a very long time. So I was talking about the other day, I'm, I'm a three stripe white belt, but, uh, my first gi is already fraying at the collar, uh, <laughs> because so many years really gone since I took my first class. But, uh, little over the last year, I've been able to sit down and be serious about it and make it a more of a priority I did my first Naga last year. Great learning experience. I'm planning on, uh, I, as long as I stay healthy, I'm going to do another one this month. Cool, man. I'm sure competition is nothing like what you went through in your deployments and what you've seen during those tough times in the military. But man, for me, that was a rite of passage doing those competitions. I was scared to do them. My first competition was a Naga, actually. I walked in. And this guy who's very well known here, Enrico Coco, he was with up against this Gracie, I forget what Gracie camp he, this other dude was with, but he was a brown belt. And I was walking in and Enrico snapped his leg with a 
uh, heel hook and the medics came in and the guy was taken <laughs> off and I was walking in and when that happened, I'm like, Oh my God, what did I get into? Was this before they outlawed heel hooks at, at the uh, white belt level? They were in advanced, I'm sure. Oh yeah. They, yeah. Cause uh Gracie guy was a brown belt and Enrico okay. was way up there. I, he was with Freestyle Fighting Academy. I don't know how their rank works there, but they're very good. I forget the guys' names, the top guys, but they've been to Abu Dhabi and you know been up against the best in the world and have fared well. And that I was scared, man, and it really helped man me up. And I definitely would not have been able to go after the stuff in life that I've accomplished afterward had I not gone through that process. You know, it wasn't the military for me. I'm sure for you, it's like, well, awesome. I get to roll on the mat and nobody shoots at me. Pretty cool. I get to walk away. And There is some of that. But I mean, uh, certainly on the way to my first competition, my wife and I were, were driving. I was nervous. I was really keyed up. And it's, and you know how, especially the Nagas are. I mean, there's so many people there. And for me too, this was going to be the very first time that my wife saw me on the mat. So I'm like, gosh, I can't, you know, she thinks very highly of me, obviously. (laughs) So, you know, I got to go in there and put on a good show for the family. So there was definitely some stress. Definitely. Yeah. No, I hear you, man. Yeah. And you can still get hurt. Absolutely. I'm interested to hear your perspective on this because you've been in the military, you've been like in the most dangerous situations you could pretty much ever be in, in these conflict situations. When you were talking about how you were training BJJ while you're a resident in, in medical school. And you're like, yeah, I'll train for a month, get back, train for a month and take a few months off. How do we fit like that primal side of us, the modern man, right? I think we need some of it, but how do you look at that? What do you recommend for the guy who's maybe hasn't developed that side of himself? Like, where do you see that fit in today's man? Wow. I think you just have to kind of zone it off. You know, just like anything, you have to separate and yet still integrate, you know, the different parts of your life. You know, just like I separate, I don't take the energy that I have on the mat or the intensity I have from my special forces training to work with me when I'm going into a meeting or when I'm walking in to to treat a patient in the emergency room. But I think the key, everything is about balance. Everything in life is about balance. So I think, you know, to that guy that's listening who hasn't really had a chance to tap into that part of himself, I would say, you know, pick something, even if it's not, you know, maybe you live somewhere where there's not an opportunity to train uh, BJJ. Do, you know, try CrossFit. Try something that's going to get your heart rate elevated. Try something, you know, get, buy a punching bag. You know, I have a Wavemaster bag in my garage and Three mornings a week, I'm down there for 30 minutes hitting the Wavemaster with Boss Rutten yelling at me. Um, oh, I love that. The, oh, the audio great. thing yes. that he has. Oh, yeah, that's amazing. such an awesome program. Yeah, absolutely amazing. I think my neighbors are starting to, to wonder who that crazy Dutch guy is in my garage they keep hearing. But it's such a great workout. Right and straight uppercut. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Defense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's nothing like it. I really get a kick out of it. That's one of the ways that I've kind of had to change my workout as I've gotten older. I've never been really big on the picking heavy things up and putting them back down again. I think that logical part of my brain says, well, you know, that weight ended up right where you started with it. So you really didn't do anything to it. Although I've gone through time periods of my life where I've done a lot of weightlifting, it's not something that's necessarily a lot of fun for me. So as my schedule has gotten a lot more packed, I have to do a lot more functional stuff to keep myself interested when it comes to fitness. Running on the treadmill just isn't as good as it used to be. So I'll do three days a week. I'll do, you know, the 30 minute, you know, high intensity interval stuff, hitting a bag. And then of course, uh, you know, a minimum of two nights a week, I'm doing BJJ. And then if I can get some more, you know, basic strength and core stuff in and maybe some CrossFit type stuff and some weights the other couple of days a week, I try to squeeze it in then. But you know, I think for anybody, you know, pick something that you're going to have fun doing, you know, hitting a big tire with a sledgehammer is a lot more fun than you might think, especially for somebody who's maybe never been in a fight and never unlocked that primal side of themselves. There's a lot to be said about picking with your fist or something else, hitting on something that's, uh, you know, thinking about your boss, thinking about that guy that cut you off in traffic and just wailing on something. But I would say the caveat to that is 
number one, obviously make sure your doctors say you're fit enough to start the exercise program. And number two, if you're going to punch something, get a little bit of instruction first because that's one of the most common injuries that we see is the people wrists, hit stuff right? when, yeah, when they don't know how to hit stuff and they get a boxer's fracture or a wrist sprain or a fracture. So do it right. Get a little bit of instruction. And we live in an age now where there's just so much out there on the internet. There's so many, there's no filter on the internet. So any charlatan is free to put his crap up there as well. But, you know, a lot of good training stuff on YouTube. There's the the Gracie garage method. You know, if you live someplace where there's nowhere you could train BJJ possibly, but you got one other person who's interested, there's a, the Stefan Kesting videos. There's a ton I of them. I love out there. those videos, man. They're I learned great. a lot. Yeah, I go back and review them from time to time when I say, hey, you know what? Tonight I was getting stuck in bottom side control way too much. I need to review those escapes. I'll go back on my iPad and look at them again. Just a great reference. Yeah. Man, you said so many great things there. And what you said about just doing some form of exercise that allows you to hit something, to be aggressive, to get that side out. Just don't go challenge a guy like me because man, I had this CrossFit guy. He kept trying to go get me to do CrossFit. And I was <laughs> like, bro, I'm training for a jujitsu competition. Do you understand? I don't want to be the best at exercising. Yeah. And he was like, nah, <laughs> man, you're probably just scared. I'm like, you know what? You're right. Let's step outside and you do your CrossFit, try to Turkish get up me or Olympic lift me or whatever you think. <laughs> and I'll do my jujitsu and let's see what happens. He did not, he declined though for some reason. Did. Yeah. Anyway, it was just such a good suggestion that you said, man. And, you know, about picking up heavy stuff. When you said that, I was like, this guy sent me a video the other day. It was on Twitter. Mm -hmm. And it's like a video that I guess he sends to everybody. It's him deadlifting 500 pounds. He's like, bring out the primal beast. Be a man. Jack up, you know, let the animal out. Go beast. And I'm like, I watched him. It's like, okay, you picked up 500 pounds. It's cool. But guess what? I mean, you know what you call, cause we had a power lifter in one of my jujitsu schools, the second jujitsu school I trained in. That guy got fucking worked from here to over there, all across the mat. And he was respectful. He was cool. But I'm just saying like, you know, it's not how much strength you have. It's how you apply it. And I don't think there's anything that brings out the primal side of you than what you said of, like hitting something in martial arts, there's just nothing like it. Whether you're just hitting the bag, like Mike said, or if you do the Gracie Garage, or if you can go train with someone amazing, get into a really good school. When I go and train, which isn't that often, I train at Cyborg Abreu's place. He's nice. the number one guy in the world right now if he hasn't been dethroned. And even if he does, he's still one of the top guys in the world. Top five, top three, easy. I just agreed with you so much. You know, picking heavy stuff. I mean, if there's any power lifters, I'm not trying to disrespect you or anything, but there's nothing like hitting things, <laughs> hitting something to get it out, right? Absolutely. And I think, like you say, you know, not dissing on the power lifters. I, you know, hopefully I'm not go outside in a couple of days and find out a couple of power lifters have picked up my Jeep and moved it across the parking lot. But <laughs> if that's your thing, that's your thing. And I totally understand that. That's not something that I'm into. And, and again, I, you know, to me, it's all about practicality of, of fitness and what I want to do with that fitness. And something that I figured out at a fairly early point in my military career was I couldn't be, you know, again, I'm five foot six. You know, if you imagine a powerlifter's frame on a guy who's five foot six, I'm going to be completely incapacitated when it comes to anything militarily that I would have to do. The amount of food and oxygen that would be required to sustain those muscles would be too much. It's going to make my short, stubby legs even stubbier and harder to move. So to me, it was always more about early in my career it was always more about endurance exercises, about about running long distances, about when I was picking up heavy objects and setting them down about doing higher repetitions and more in a functional manner and staying fit like that. Now, at this point in my life, it's a little bit less about the long runs. It used to be all about the five to eight mile runs. Now for me, it's more about the explosivity, more about the high intensity interval stuff, the stuff that's going to help me with jujitsu and the stuff that I have time, quite frankly, to fit into my busy schedule. Yeah. I know we've been on for an hour. Can I ask you a few more things, Mike? Is that cool? Sure. One thing that I want to talk about, and then I want to ask you about uh, the American Sniper, but the one thing 
that I was kind of getting at is I was listening to you and you've been in the military and done all this stuff as a special forces guy when you were a ranger. And to me, when you were talking about how you're getting into Brazilian jiu-jitsu, it's a new challenge, but it's also, it keeps that side of you, like that primal side, that animalistic, hey, I need to hunt and kill my food. Hey, I need to fight for survival. I need to fight to protect my family. It keeps that alive in us. Even though you're probably never going to run into a situation where you're going to have to use it. And I think about myself, like when I was going to Cyborg Abreu's, there are guys in there. There was another brown belt in there, right? And I'm a brown belt from a different school. I've been three different schools. And if you, you don't know the Brazilian jiu-jitsu thing, you got to come into a new school showing a lot of respect. Oh, yeah. Or you're going to get your ass whipped. And I came in there like that, but there was this one brown belt. He just always had it out for me. He kept asking me, he's like, hey, man, you want to roll? And I knew he wanted to fuck me up, right? Not bad, but he just wanted like, you know, to out-alpha me, to dominate me. And I actually kept on saying, I would be like, um, I don't know, man, come back in 10 minutes and ask me again. And then I'd leave or do something <laughs> like I'd play him a little bit because mm-hmm. he didn't have game like talking to me. And what I'm getting at is as we get older, as we have more injuries, as we have more restrictions, maybe on time, we can't be like the number one badass like I wanted to be when I was you know, in my late 20s as a purple belt and I wanted to do the world championships and all that stuff and compete. We don't need to be number one badass, right? No, absolutely not. I mean, you, you have to accept, especially as you get older. I'm 48. I'm going to be 49 years old next month. I do put a fair amount of energy into training BJJ. I do a little bit of, of kickboxing as well. I also am very fortunate in that Fort Hood, Texas, of course, is right up the road. The active duty guys who train at the Fort Hood Fight Gym are just amazing. I don't know if you know a lot about the Modern Army Combatives Program. Are you familiar with it at all, Ted? I've seen some of it, but I don't know that much. Feel free to uh, talk about it. So um, it started from a guy in the 2nd Ranger Battalion, very strong jiu-jitsu base. It's based primarily on on jiu-jitsu moves. We used to have this old army hand-to-hand system that, gosh, I'm trying to remember. I, I don't know if it was Hapkido or, or what it was. There were some judo throws in there, but it was a lot of old fe- – when you see these old videos from like uh, World War II and, and even up until Vietnam time frame where you'd see these guys in sawdust pits just throwing each other over their heads, it wasn't really practical. It wasn't something you could really train at full speed. And obviously, as you know, BJJ is something you can train at full speed. Fort Hood, Texas has just an outstanding modern army combatives team. They've they've been number one in the nation against other army posts multiple times. Colton Smith, former UFC fighter, is one of the NCOs that works there. A lot of other guys that fight professionally or fight on the amateur circuit here in Texas. I've worked some of their fights, of course, as a fight doctor here, but they were nice enough to invite me, you know, anytime I wanted to to come up and train with them. And they do it because, you know, when they need a, you know, a physical exam or a blood test or something like that for their licensure, you know, always try to help out with that. Need, you know, medical coverage for an event that they're doing on post. I always try to help out with that. And, and they're nice enough to reciprocate by involving me in their training. And, you know, you look at those guys and, and you're like, wow, if I could just turn back the clock, if I would have started this when I was 19, 20 years old, that'd be great. But I know walking in there, I'm not going to beat any of these guys with the gloves on or, or grappling on the mat. That's just not going to happen. And I accept that. I mean, just the fact that I can get in there at my age and just do it and walk away with a little bit of mutual respect, to me, that's everything right there. Just being able to take it to that point. And it's something you just have to accept as you get a little bit older. Now, I will say that one thing that makes me feel pretty good is I'm, I'm fairly confident that if I had a time machine and I could go back 10 years and fight me from 10 years ago, I think I could take me. I like it. And you know, something I was getting at too is I personally, although I'm not like the top guy or one of the top, I was never the top guy, right? In my class, but I was always one of the top jujitsu guys in every place that I went, except for cyborgs. That was uh, much later. And uh, after I kind of stopped training very seriously and took my business more seriously, but I feel more powerful now right? I feel like as a man, I feel more powerful now. I take 
firearms lessons. I'm getting into that. You're getting into BJJ. I'm trying to get my, uh, you know, black belt in firearms now. And I mean, awesome. you know, like tactical firearms, not just, mm -hmm. you know, blowing a few rounds at the stationary uh, target in the range. And man, I feel like I'm more of a man. I, I guess what I'm getting at is guys, you don't have to be the number one, like Mike said, and you can still develop your personal power. You can still maintain, get that respect for the younger guys. You don't have all the mileage and all the injuries and just are really kicking ass right now. But it's just important that you keep it up because nobody wants to hear your, well, when I was your age story, you know? No. Keep it up. <laughs> Very cool. And Mike, I guess I should ask you about this when we were talking about your deployments and all the military, but I'm really curious of your opinion on the movie American Sniper because I'm actually going to go see it tonight. Everybody's been talking about it. You actually know a bit about Chris from Chris Kyle, the person who the movie is based on. Uh, can you talk about the movie and how realistic is that? compared to what you've experienced and what you know from being in those situations and from other guys that you know. Today, actually, as I mentioned before we started uh, rolling the tape, today's actually a great day to talk about Chris Kyle because in here in Texas, the governor has set aside February 2nd as Chris Kyle Day. Uh, I did go see the movie. My wife and I went um, shortly after it came out. Really powerful film. I think you're going to enjoy it. I think everyone should see it. You're never going to tell every soldier or sailor's or Marine's story in one film. And that's anyone who try would be doing so in vain. I do think there are a lot of aspects of the film that did speak to me on a personal level. I did not deploy to Iraq as a sniper. Obviously, I deployed to Iraq as a physician. But uh, knowing the mindset of special operators and having come up as one, knowing what drives them, how they approach things, the camaraderie, why they do what they do. The film absolutely uh, spoke to me on a very personal level. There were a lot of little nuances in the film that I picked up on that really told me that they did their research. I don't want to spoil anything in the film for you. And also, there's so many little details and things that my wife sitting next to me noticed as well. Just little small things that, you know, that afterwards, things that she had noticed about things that I do, things that I say, my outlook on certain things, the way I put my boots on in the morning, so to speak, that she saw similarities in a lot of the stuff there. And, and I think it gave her a better understanding for what goes on in our community. And I was already a physician when my wife and I met, although she has seen me do some work in the special operations community we were never married when I was an operator. I don't think it's hard to give somebody a full appreciation of what that lifestyle is like, but I think the film is a great depiction of it. I think it's a great window into one man's journey in war and trying to reconcile that back home um, as a person, as a father, as a husband. Again, I really think everybody should see it. it was, I was really moved by it, and I think you will be too. It's a great film. Awesome. I can't wait. One more thing. Did you watch Fury? I did watch Fury. My wife and I also watched that. That's an excellent film. Also very powerful. A lot in that film, if you've seen it, to disturb you and to make you think and to make you appreciate what it's like to really depend on those couple of guys to your left and right. Out of all the things that man does, war is certainly an ugly thing. You know, it's been said war is an ugly thing, but not the ugliest of things. I think that is true. When it gets right down to it, I think the movie Fury illustrates it very well. When everything is on the line, it's not about flags and it's not about anthems and it's not about heads of state. It's about those guys immediately to your left and right. Wow. Very cool. Yeah, there's some powerful moments in that movie. I'm so looking forward to American Sniper tonight. That's my birthday outing tonight. I don't go out and party crazy in Miami Beach anymore and do any of that crazy stuff, but that I'm really looking forward to that. And so I suggest you see it. You got a glowing review from Mike, a guy who's been there, a guy who knows he's one of those guys and he knows those guys like Chris who were snipers and yeah, and there you go. And Fury too, man. And just watching that, it's like what really struck me about that movie was just the fact that the morality 
that we grew up with needs to kind of be pushed to the side. And you got to, like you said, think about the guys next to you because there's this one situation where a guy ends up making a decision not to fire on these people because he had a hard time. Like he knew he was going to kill them and he didn't want to do it. But as a result, these other guys ended up getting killed. And yeah. you saw like just the decision making, oh, I don't want to kill those people. And then, then oh, okay, well, now your guys are dead. And it just gives you an appreciation of the tough choices that guys like Mike, guys in the field and doing things in the service of our country have to go through. And I just believe in respecting that and appreciating it. And I respect the hell out of you, Mike. Thank you so much for being here and sharing your experiences and helping the guys out there understand what a person like you and everything you've accomplished, what your mindset is, what you've learned from all your different situations and all your accomplishments. Where can the listeners find out more about you? If you want to look me up on Twitter, I'm at at MMA underscore doctor on Twitter. Just uh, give me a follow. Give me a shout out if you have any questions, anything that you want to talk about. Also, I'm in the process of getting a new business off the ground that's going to deal with uh, combat sports medicine as well as tactical medicine. And my website is hoplonmedical.com. That's H-O-P-L-O-N medical.com. And uh, you can find me at either one of those places and uh, always looking to answer questions for people, whether it's about combat sports or whether it's about my military experience. Awesome. So make sure you go check out Mike. Give him a shout out on Twitter. Let him know that you appreciate and respect his time and what he shared with you. And Mike, I'd love to finish up by hearing your final words because man, you are so accomplished. You've done the Ranger School. You've become a Green Beret. Then you got out and now you're a medical doctor. I mean, you're so accomplished as a man, as a person. What final words do you have for the guy listening to start taking charge of his life, to start taking things on and getting uncomfortable and accomplishing what he wants? Just that, like we said at the beginning of a podcast, you got to get rid of the excuses. Excuses are not a wall. Excuses are a fabrication of your mind. You know, they're an obstacle to get around definitely, but they're not insurmountable. So once you push those excuses aside, success is just going to be there. It's not going to even be something you have to pursue. So get rid of the excuses. You know, don't tell yourself reasons you can't do something. Tell yourself the reasons that you can. Make things prove to you that they can't be done. They're out there just waiting to happen. Awesome, Mike. Thanks for those last inspirational words. And thank you so much for sharing your wisdom, your knowledge, and most importantly, your time, man. I really appreciate it, Mike. It was an honor. You've reached the end of another episode of The Man Project. Connect with us at manprojectpodcast.com. Don't forget to sign up to our newsletter to receive our free tools. See you next episode.